All right. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you so much, Lord, for bringing us here today. I thank you that you speak to us every time we seek you. And we seek you today as we look to this scripture that is difficult to understand. Help us to understand it. And in doing so, help us to understand you. Give us ears to hear the message that your spirit would speak to this church this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we started uh, looking at the letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And we learned that those were the words of Jesus to these churches. And, um, and we also learned that Jesus' words to the church back then are also his words to the church today. It's great that we can learn, you know, what he was saying to them, but it's even more important that we would learn what that means for us today as we move forward. And so bear in mind that as you hear the letter to the church at Smyrna, it is also the letter to the church at Ridley Park. So Smyrna, I'm going to give you a little bit of history so that you understand what was going on with them and why Jesus said the things that he said to them. This was a trade city on the Aegean Sea. It had a port on the Aegean Sea. It was about 40 miles north of Ephesus. There was a Roman trade route that they typically would follow, and it would, it looks kind of like a horseshoe. So Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and, and all of the seven churches would have been right along that trade route. So John from Patmos sent this letter, and it's made its way along this horseshoe. But 40 miles north of Ephesus was this uh, city of Smyrna. Um, it was a worshiping city, though they didn't necessarily worship the God of Israel and Jesus Christ. They worshiped all sorts of pagan gods and, and even the Roman emperor. This was a city that was under Roman rule. And Rome would allow all of these other religions to exist in their city as long as the people would worship the emperor above all others. Christians would not. This church at Smyrna would not, could not do this because of their love of Jesus and the faith that they had in him. So when the other people, the pagan people, would bow down and say that emperor is Lord, they would get a certificate. And it was that certificate that enabled them to trade and to earn a living and to do business. But without that certificate that the Christians did not have because they wouldn't denounce Jesus— they were destitute. They weren't able to earn a living, and they weren't able to trade. And so by the world's terms, they were poor. Living in a rich city, but they were poor. Now, the Greek word um, Smyrna means myrrh. It means myrrh. And who can tell me where in the scriptures we see also the word myrrh, which in Greek is Smyrna? Anybody? Shout it out. Yes, we see it in the birth story. When the Magi came, they gave three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We also see myrrh uh, at the other end of Jesus' life when the women went to anoint his body with spices and myrrh. Okay, myrrh uh, was used because it had a sweet aroma and that would cover the, the smell of stench and decay and death and cluck. Um, and Smyrna, named Smyrna because they were big traders of myrrh. That's where uh, a lot of the myrrh comes from, that town. 
uh, in Smyrna. So it's interesting how you get myrrh. I'm going to tell you about that because I feel like it's kind of important to what um, we need to hear today. It comes from the Kamaphora tree. And how you get it is that you have to wound the tree. You have to wound the tree. You slash the bark. And the sap that bleeds out of that slash in the bark, that would be dried. And then they would take that dried sap and they would crush it. And when they crushed it, the aroma was released. So it's in the wounding and the crushing that myrrh is made useful, that Smyrna is made useful. And that fact amazes me because... Think of this, how often is it in our own lives that it's in the wounding and the crushing that we endure that our faith in Jesus becomes the most evident and becomes the most useful? It's in those times when we are experiencing wounding and crushing that we draw to him, that we seek him the most, and that our faith in him is the most fragrant. It's in the wounding and the crushing. That's just a little FYI. You are now going to think of myrrh differently next Christmas when you hear us talk about it, and you're going to understand that it wasn't just a gift for a baby, but it was a symbol of how our Lord Jesus would be wounded and would bleed on the cross for us, would be crushed in order to cover the stench of our sin and decay. That's the history of Smyrna. And so let's look at Christ's words to this church, bearing in mind that the words to the church at Smyrna are also the words to the church at Mount Hope. Verse 8, Jesus says this, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. Remember, that re refers back to what we studied last week in chapter 1, uh, John's vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would Jesus describe himself in this way as the first and the last, the one who died and who came to life again? I'm going to tell you why, okay? Because if you're going through extreme hardship, if you're enduring terrible persecution, possibly losing your life as these people in the church at Smyrna were, you want to know that the person that is speaking to you has experienced it all. The one who suffered every kind of suffering and endured every kind of persecution and yet who overcame it and was triumphant over it in the face of that hardship. That's the one who is talking to you and you want to know that. And that's why Jesus referred to himself as such when he spoke to the church that was about to suffer and be persecuted. When you're going through the most difficult things you can imagine, you want to be speaking to the person who understands you. Not just because they sympathize with you, but because they have experienced for themselves what you're going through, don't you? Jesus, he experienced it all. And he won. He was victorious over every single hardship that the enemy threw his way. He's the one you want to hear from when you're in your own hardship. Trust me. And so here's what he said in verse 9. He said, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now I want to just focus on the first two words for a second. I know. I know. Jesus said, I know. In Greek, it's one word, I do. E-I-D-O, I do. And it means this, to see, to be aware of, 
to understand. That's what Ido means. Jesus says, I see the way you are suffering. I see your afflictions. Afflictions, the word in Greek is thalipsis. And here's how thalipsis translates. It translates into crushing, pressing together, pressure, anguish, burden, tribulation, distress. Thalipsis is no fun, folks. But I want you to know what that means for you and me today. That Jesus says, I see your thalipsis. I see your trouble and your tribulation. It, it, I see the pressure you're under, Jesus says. I see what's crushing you. I see what's burdening you. I see your distress. And I know, I know exactly what that's like for you. I wonder how many of us are going through hardship today. And our hardships are going to look different for each and every one of us, but I'm willing to bet that there are a good number of us hearing these words today who are in some way struggling or who are being crushed, who are dealing with sickness or pain or suffering even today as we speak. And in the midst of all of that, it's easy to feel like you're all alone. I may be in a room full of people, but in my suffering, I feel like I'm all alone. And what I want you to know is that is a lie from Satan. That is a lie from Satan because when you are suffering, you are not alone. There is a Savior who says, I see you and I know what you're going through. And remember last week, we learned that he walks with us. He walks among us. Some of us in this room are watching our parents wither and die. And Jesus knows what that feels like because he lost his father sometime after his 12th birthday. Some of us might be feeling like we've been betrayed by our friends. Jesus knows exactly how that hurts. Maybe you're struggling financially right now and you don't know from where your next meal is going to come. And the scriptures remind us that Jesus knows. He had nowhere to lay his head. He knows exactly what that feels like. And so when you feel like you're beaten down and you feel like the world is against you and you feel like no matter what you say or no matter what you do, somebody's going to have a beef with it, that, that's thalipsis. Thalipsis is no fun. And Jesus says, I see you. Not only do I see you, but I know what you're going through. And I know how you feel. And I don't know about you, but that's exactly the comfort that I need in my life. I need to know that I'm not alone, even when I feel all alone. I need to know that I have a Savior whose love for me is stronger than anything that the enemy could ever throw at me. And that's the reminder I get when I read this letter to the church at Smyrna and the church at Mount Hope. And then Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And Jesus is calling them to look past the temporal, look past what you see, look past the fact that everybody around you has everything they need and you are hungry. Look past all of that. They were living in an affluent town, these people in Smyrna, and everyone around them was rich and they couldn't even earn a living because they wouldn't denounce Jesus. And Jesus says to them, look past all of that. 
look past the things of the world and see that there is nothing more valuable in all of life than to know and be known by the Savior of the world. To know and be known by he who is the Savior of the world. One of the best stories I ever heard uh, was told by a guy named Steve Fitzhugh. I don't know if anybody ever heard of Steve Fitzhugh. He was um, a football player for the Denver Broncos. Denver Broncos, and at the time I heard him speak, he was the chairman of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he told us about a time that he had traveled to Africa, and he was doing a little bit of mission work in a village, and he was blessed to attend a church service in the village while he was there, and he described for us the building that they called a church that they worshiped in, and it was a thatched roof, and was made out of like leaves, and uh, when it rained, the rain would leak through and it would rain on their heads and they would get wet. And he told us that they had one light bulb in the center of the room that was connected to an extension cord and that was connected to another extension cord and to another one and another one and it led all the way out to the one generator that they had that provided power for their entire village. And so they had this one light bulb by which they read the very few Bibles that they could get their hands on. Steve said that they had had a meal together. One of the villagers had killed a wild boar and everyone in the village had a few bites to eat. And after they ate those few bites, they worshipped for hours and hours. And Steve said, how can you worship for hours and hours in this wet little tent on just a few bites of food? And the pastor said to Steve, we worship because God is good. God is good. And Steve told us that he thought in that moment, what kind of a good God would allow his children to worship in a bug-infested, dimly lit, rain-sopping church? And what kind of a good God would allow his children to try and survive on only a few bites of food? These people had nothing by the world's standards. And yet they were singing the praises of a good God for hours on end. And Steve told us that right in that moment he realized that these poor, these hungry villagers may well have been the richest people he ever knew. Because they knew God and because they understood that God knew them and because they understood their salvation and because they appreciated God's provision for them and because they knew that God would get them through trouble and hardship and because they knew that through the Lord Jesus Christ they had hope and a future in heaven to look forward to. They were in poverty yet they were rich. That's what Jesus is saying to the church at Smyrna. Being rich doesn't have anything to do with material stuff. It means knowing and being known by the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, who is the savior of the world. And so I ask you today, are you rich? I'm rich. I'm so rich. Praise Jesus. He goes on. He says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Slander is when you're spoken against by somebody, right? Back in that day, the Jews hated the Christians as much as the Romans hated the Christians. And the Jews would dime them out. They would sell out the Christians to the Romans. And Jesus is saying, these people are Jews, but they have rejected me. It is as though they are the house of Satan. 
Verse 10, Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, there are two challenges in this piece of scripture for you and me. And the first is this. Jesus said, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be fearless. Jesus says, I know you and I see your troubles. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fearless. Does anybody know how many times in scripture we are told to fear not, to have no fear, to be fearless? Anybody know how many? 365, 365 times in God's word, we are reminded not to be afraid. One for every day of the year. And I like that because sometimes to me, it feels like every single day just brings new troubles and something new to deal with, right? But God has given us enough encouragement and enough reassurance to handle every single one of them. Praise God. Hallelujah. Don't be afraid, Jesus said, of what you're about to suffer. It won't last. It won't last. So this 10 days thing, we're not certain. Scholars really haven't agreed on it, whether it's 10 literal days or whether it's 10 pockets of time or 10 Roman emperor rules. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that we're not certain what it means. We are certain that 10 days is a delineated amount of time. It's a specific amount of time. Jesus is saying, you're going to suffer. It's coming and you're going to suffer. But it's only going to be for a time. And then your suffering is going to end. You're going to suffer. It's guaranteed if you're a follower of Christ. We read it all over in the scriptures. And sometimes we experience in our lives, this world as a whole is not in love with and appreciating Jesus. There are pockets of people here and there, but we are not the majority. And so if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to go all out for Jesus, if you're going to stand up for Jesus, the world is eventually going to come against you and you're going to have trials. We're reminded about that over and over in the Bible. James says, rejoice when trials come your way. That's hard to do, but why does he say that? Because they grow us. They help us to grow. Jesus said, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my sake. He knows that it's coming for us. And yet Jesus gives us the reassurance that whatever comes after you, it's only for a short period of time. Of time. Trouble is coming. Trouble is coming, but it's a short period of time. And remember this, Jesus is the first and the last. He overcame all of that. Jesus conquered what for you would be the worst trouble you would ever have, which is death. And his love for you is more powerful and more lasting than any trouble that the enemy could ever send your way. So the first challenge for us is to be fearless. Here comes the second. Jesus said this. He said, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus' his second challenge to this church and his second challenge to you and me, folks, is to be faithful. We're called to be fearless and to be faithful. Mount Hope, be fearless and be faithful. Does anybody know what the opposite of fear is? It's faith. The opposite of fear is faith. If you have faith in God and you have faith in God's provision for you and you have faith in God's protection over you, then and only then can you be fearless. Faith drives out fear. 
Faith overcomes fear. And so Jesus is calling you to have faith so you can be fearless, be fearless and faithful, even to the point of death, he says. Now, that was very much a fact for the people back in Smyrna. Many of them were, in fact, dying every day for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I doubt that you and I are ever going to have to die for our faith in Jesus. But here's the question. Could you do it? Could you do it? I, I'd like to think that I would. I would like to think that I would have that kind of faithfulness toward my Savior that I would lay down my life if it were required of me. And I pray that you would too. But here's my favorite part. My favorite part is entire scripture. Here it comes. Listen in. And I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. Remember last week when we heard Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus, he said to the one who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life, which is in the center of the garden, right? And, and here he says, I will give you the crown of life. It's great to know that we're getting a fruit, which is eternal fellowship with God. And it's great to know that we're getting a crown, which represents eternal life. It's good to know that we're getting them, but it's even better to know who's given it to us. Jesus said, I will give you the crown. I will give you the crown. One, one night a week, Carl and I go out for date night. And we usually hit one of our favorite restaurants and we order a nice meal. And that meal comes out and it's prepared by the restaurant chef who I've never met. And, uh, and it's a nice meal and we love it and we enjoy it and appreciate it. We tell uh, Matt, the server, we say, tell the chef, that was good. That was really great and we loved it. But you may remember last week, I told you that at the beginning of our marriage, I made Carl's mom's recipe for homemade pierogies for him just because I wanted him to know that I loved him, right? I like to think that the pierogies that I gave him meant so much more than the filet mignon that the chef gave him. Why? Because it was me who loves Carl more than anything in the world who gave it to him. So the gift isn't the actual food. It's the love and the caring of the giver, right? Jesus. Jesus himself will give me the crown of life. I want you to imagine that. Imagine that you're standing in heaven before the one who gave his life for you. The one who wore the crown of thorns on his head on your behalf. And he looks you in the eye and he says, here, I saw the things that you suffered and I heard you speak my name in the midst of it. And I saw that you were fearless. And I saw that you were faithful. Here is the crown of life. Lord, help me to be fearless and to be faithful even in the face of trials so I can see that day. May we, Mount Hope, live our lives in light of that moment. Verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one, the one who is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. 
Here's where people sometimes get a little scared when they're reading it. It's like Revelation, ooh, scary. I read this scripture to Carl uh, right before I wrote the sermon, and that was what he got out of it. He goes, oh, what's the second death? It's pretty simple. It's mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. The second death is hell. It's separation eternally from God. It comes at the final judgment. So the first death is when your body dies. The second death is when your spirit is cast away from God forever. We call that hell. Okay. Did you ever hear the saying that Christians will sometimes say, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Did you ever hear that? All right, you're going to hear it today. I, I've heard it like a million times, but I don't know. All right, so if you're born once, you're born physically, right, of your mother, um, then you will die physically, and you'll eventually die eternally. But if you're born twice, so if you're born of your mother, and then you're born again, Born again, we know that means that you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sin and rose again on the third day in your place to show you that everything that we're reading about and learning about in these scriptures is true. If you put your faith in his provision for your, your covering of sins, then you're born twice. You're born again. And so you only die once. Eventually, your body is going to die but you will never experience the second death because jesus is your savior and you will never experience eternal separation from your father in heaven which we call hell you will not be harmed by the second death that's what that means that is the promise of our savior that is the promise of our savior eternal life and fellowship with your father in heaven the comfort of our savior is this i know what you're going through the challenge of our Savior is this. Be fearless and be faithful. And the promise of our Savior is, I will give you the crown of life. Lord, hasten the day when my Savior looks me in the eye and gives me the crown of life. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you. But you speak to us through your word. I thank you that you understand us, that you have stood in our place, that you walk beside us when things are difficult. I thank you that you love us so much, that your love overpowers anything the enemy sends our way. We love you. We love you. Help us to be fearless. Help us to be faithful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.